and we're going to deal with the story of Anna, or Anna, and uh, I want you to turn to Luke 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 22. Luke 2, verse 22. Sound good? Awesome. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, meaning Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So after, after Jesus has been born, there is a ceremony that takes place that is required by the law of Moses for purification of the mother. Mosaic law stuff. And in order to complete that, they have to travel now to Jerusalem. And so they're on their way to Jerusalem, to the temple, to present the offering that is required. And you will notice here that in the scriptures in Luke's account of this, it's a pair of doves or two young pigeons, which would have been, in a sense, the minimum requirement. That would have been given by a family, by a couple that is, is, is pretty much pretty poor that would not have much in the way of, of gifts to give. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, and we'll talk about him next week, who was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do, what, to do for him what the, uh, the custom of the law required. And Simeon took him in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you have promised, uh, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. And that's, there's a lot of stuff packed in there, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next, uh, next Sunday. But let's continue. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So they're off to the temple. They're ready to present their two pigeons or their two doves as a sacrifice. They're thinking that this is an in and out thing. Let me explain this to the guys. You know, guys, like when you're going shopping with your wife and you ask her what's on the list. And she says two things, in and out. Now, I'm not saying that's every wife, and I bet you there's some guys in here that do that to their wives. But we know it's the wives that do it to the husbands. <laughs> and you find yourself in the stores much longer than you anticipated. And you ask yourself, because we're just innocent guys, how did that happen? How was I beguiled? King James word. 
Hey, King James sometimes just nails it, eh? <laughs> Joseph and Mary think this is an in and out. Because this, this is done all of the time. Children are born all of the time, and they're brought to the temple, and, and the sacrifices are offered for the purification ceremony. This is done all the time. This is no big deal. This is not some big ceremony per se. It's not like there would be an entourage. There's not people in there taking pictures and then posting it later, right? This is an in and out thing. The child is going to be presented. The offering is going to be there, the sacrificial offering, and they're going to walk out and that's going to be it. And then all of a sudden, this guy that they've never seen before, remember, right? He's hanging around the temple. He's in Jerusalem. Jesus and Mary aren't from Jerusalem. That's not their neck of the woods. That's not where they hang out. They're not familiar with this guy. I mean, I'm sure that they have visited the temple before, but they don't know who Simeon is. And all of a sudden, Simeon comes up to them, and he just unloads. And again, we're going to get to it next week. He unloads on them this, this prophetic word that they had no idea was about to happen. And then they're put in the place where they kind of have to absorb this. Now, you might think, well, why would they be surprised by that? I mean, Joseph's already found out that, like, the child is, it's a, you know, quote, as we say, an immaculate conception. It's, it's the son of God. Uh, they've already been through a lot in the last nine months. They've had angels visit them. They should be open for just about everything. But I'm thinking that they're thinking at this time in their life, things have finally got back to normal. There's no angels, there's no shepherds, there's none of that going on. They're presenting the child and everything is going to be fine and they're going to go back to their hometown and live happily ever after. And then Simeon says that. So if that wasn't enough, let's get to the text. Verse 36. There was also a prophet or prophetess Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. We'll talk about that in a minute. And she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84, or some versions, she was a widow for 84 years. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. So again, abstract lady, nobody knows who she is really, at least not Mary and Joseph. And then look what she does in verse 38. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to whom all were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, what I like about this story is that it says in the last verse, she gave thanks and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. In one sentence, it tells us that she spoke to others about what this child represented, but it doesn't give us any of the details. It just puts it out there and it leaves it there. We have no idea what she said or how she said it or how many people that she spoke to. But she seems to have a prophetic connection and she understands who this child is and everything that he's going to mean for Israel as it relates to the redemption story. She's understood that. So why is this lady significant to us? And I think that's the big question, right? Why would we even take time to talk about her? The reason why I think it's important that we talk about her is because I think Anna represents all kinds of different people to us in church life, in, in the life of faith. 
She is truly one of those un, unsung heroes or heroines that, that, that nobody really talks about, hardly anybody notices. In everyday life, she could actually seem pretty invisible, pretty uh, unextraordinary, pretty ordinary. And yet, and yet the scriptures recall in two verses her presence and what she said. So she gets biblical airtime in a very positive light. And my thought is, if she's getting biblical airtime in a very positive light, then there must be something about her that we can learn about or, or learn from her and her story. Because I think Anna represents the majority of us. Just the everyday folk who are going about our business but have an ear to God, have an ear to the throne, and are interested in what God is saying, and then taking that message and sharing it with others in a very redemptive, very evangelistic type way, and in order that others may understand. And I think that's specific to us at Christmas time. One of the things that you and I need to do at Christmas time is properly frame what it means. I know that there are a number of people that have the signs out on the front lawn, keep Christ in Christmas, or Christ is Christmas, or those kinds of things. That's great, but I think it's important for us to verbally frame that in order to help people understand why that's important. So I'm, um, I'm watching some TV about two weeks ago. I have no idea where uh, my owner is. Karen is out. And so I'm, I'm, I'm left alone at home, and I'm watching TV, and I'm surfing. And Charlie Brown's Christmas comes up. Have you watched it? Charlie Brown's Christmas. 1965. Any of you born 65-ish? There you go. 65. And I know what you're thinking, or I think I know what you're thinking. Really, Pastor, you're going to talk about Charlie Brown? But if you watch the end of Charlie Brown, the question is this. Charlie Brown is concerned about it. The question is, like, what is Christmas all about, right? That's the question that he asks at the end of the cartoon. You may not think that, uh, you know, that a Snoopy cartoon is asking that question. And then Linus comes up, and he starts quoting Scripture. Because it's 1965, right? And we still love Jesus and quoted the Bible in 1965. And all of a sudden, Linus starts quoting, I think it's Luke. It's Luke 2. And, and it's just left like that. Hey, Charlie Brown, you want to know what Christmas is all about? It's all about a Savior that has been born in Bethlehem. I mean, it's Charlie Brown telling us what Christmas is all about. He doesn't say presents. He doesn't say snowmen. He doesn't say family gatherings. He says it's all about a little child that is going to be born and is going to save the world from their sins. It's astounding. Again, framing it, right? What Anna is doing is, look, this child, this child means something. This child is beginning something. This child is going to explain to us why his birth, why his life is important. And for those of us 2,000 years later, we have to hone in on that to remember what it's all about. Because even in Christian circles, 
we can kind of lose track of the fact that it's about a child that was born to be the savior of the world, that he would save his people from their sins. Folks, if you go beyond that in the sense of getting meaning from Christmas, this is what happens, I think. Christmas becomes somewhat of a disappointment. One of the things that I've learned as I've gotten older is that Christmas means many things to many different people. And to some people, Christmas is not a good time. Now, 20 years ago, that would have never dawned on me because I've never had a bad Christmas. I've had a few sad Christmases, especially lately where we've had loved ones pass away. And uh, Christmas, that first Christmas afterwards just isn't quite the same. And I think to some degree, every Christmas after that isn't the same, but especially the first one. And I remember when, uh, you know, we've got our traditions just like you do. Right? The first thing we do Christmas morning is when whichever posse we can get together first thing, and that's becoming a harder thing for us now. First thing we do is we read the Christmas story and we pray, right? That's, that's the very first thing we do. Well, no, the first thing we do is we get a cup of coffee. I'll be honest. <laughs> then we read the scriptures and then we pray. And then we, we, we always have stockings and we go through the stockings. And then eventually through the day as the different family members gather, we, we go through the gifts. But that, that first Christmas when, when, when Karen's dad died, it was like you poured the coffee, you read the Christmas story, we prayed, and then we cried, right? And some of you know what that's all about. But for others, it's, it's even worse that there are things about Christmas that bring up family things or other things, and it's just very difficult, very, you know, very emotional. It, it, it's, it's not a healthy thing, and... If you try to find meaning only in Christmas, in family or in gifts or in good memories, what happens is those erode a little bit. Or as you get older, those things just don't seem to have the weight or the impact that they used to. So it's important for us to learn from Anna about what it is to hone in on, on why the birth means something to us. That's got to go beyond setting up the trees and decorating the house and all, and, and the family and the friends over, as much fun as that can be for many of us. So that's what she helps us do. So she's an unsung hero because she is just an ordinary person in a very difficult time in Israel's history, reminds us about what the Christmas season is all about. And I realize in those days they didn't call it Christmas. But what we call the Christmas season is all about, even though the scriptures don't tell us what she said. That's the interesting thing. It doesn't say what she said. Simeon, and we'll look at him next week, gives us all kinds of detail about Jesus and being a sign spoken against. But for Anna, it, it's this positive that she's expressing that because Jesus is born, because this child is born, there is hope and there is faith and there is life, not just for Israel, but for all people. That Jesus speaks to life. That Jesus speaks to hope. That Jesus, this birth of this child, reminds us that God again, who seems to have been quiet for hundreds of years in Israel's history, all of a sudden is active again and is moving again. And God has, in a sense, re-engaged the people of Israel. And because of that, there is great hope for us. Now the question I want to know is why Anna? You ever wonder about that? Certain people experience certain things, benefit certain things, have certain blessings or whatever, and you ask why. Like, why? Why this lady? There is nothing significant as you read through the first, you know, the, the two verses, well, three, 36, 37, 38, nothing that would necessarily separate her from us. In fact, her life story could be many life stories in this room. 
First thing we know about her, Anna, and her name could have been Hannah as well. Her name means grace or favor. And again, remember, in those days when, when the father named the children, there was always something important. A naming of a child in those days was very important. It wasn't just haphazard or what's the, you know, what's the flavor of the year, right? When our oldest was born in 1986, and a shout out to Rob and Lori Oates with their Kyle. In 1986, Kyle was the number one male name in, in Canada. Now, I don't know why we picked it. We just, uh, we, we picked it. You know, it was just one of those things, right? Nobody in my family wants my name. <laughs> Mitchell is Mitchell Brent, right? We made Mitchell take my middle name. <laughs> he was eight pounds and he couldn't fight back. And <laughs> so he's Mitchell Brent. But when all the grandbabies are being born now, they're all named after Harold's side of the family. We, we need to have a talk about that. <laughs> but in these days, names, names were very significant. They meant something. And, and, and families and, and the dads that named the children were often looking forward to some blessing from God. Or they received the child as a blessing from God. So Anna here means this. It either means favor or grace. And it could be that her dad, Penuel, felt like there was grace or favor placed upon the family because they had this child. We don't know the family background, if she was the only child they had. We don't know any of the story. But certainly the family felt that there was grace or favor, and they named her that. It tells us that she was a prophetess. It is interesting in Luke's story that he mentions both Simeon and Anna because Luke is the guy that deals with prophecy. Luke is the guy in the Gospels that deals with the prophetic word. Luke is the guy that writes in the book of Acts that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will speak in other languages and you will speak about God. Luke is that guy. That's his emphasis. And after having 400 years of silence between Malachi and this time, all of a sudden we have two prophetic words come in strong ways from Simeon and then one from Anna. It's unusual in the sense that this, that there's been 400 years of silence, and yet the gospel writer Luke automatically recognizes these two individuals as being prophets. At the same time, we also understand this, that it was unusual for it to be a female. But it was also a sign that God was beginning to pour out his spirit in new ways, even though Jesus' blood hasn't been shed yet, even though the new covenant hasn't come into force, even though the spirit, in a sense, hasn't been poured out. Nonetheless, the prophetic word comes through a woman, and it shows that the days are indeed unusual, and something new is stirring in the kingdom of God, something very good and something very healthy. But Luke describes her as a prophetess, lending credence to the fact that the word that she will share with the people is significant. It then tells us, for whatever reason, that she's the daughter of Penel. Uh, we don't know who this guy is. I did some research on him. Uh, I couldn't find out too much about him. It's just that she is part of the tribe of Asher. The name, when translated into English, could mean face of God. And so there is this tradition here of understanding the family names and the significance, but she is also able to train to, to um, pardon me, to uh, follow her ancestry all the way back to the tribe of Asher. 
Now, what do you know about the tribe of Asher? Now, remember, it's Asher. This isn't a reindeer. This isn't Dasher. This is Asher, right? What do you know about Asher? Right, nothing. Asher was one tribe that was supposed to be placed in the northern kingdom. It was along the coast of the Mediterranean, close to the Phoenicians. So it, it, its territory bordered Gentile territory, and they traded with the Phoenicians and off the sea. We also learned that they never really did occupy the land that they were supposed to be given, but they, they had a few towns. In other words, the tribe of Asher never really got its act together from the time of Joshua on. And back when the, uh, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, Asher was one of the tribes that was, in a sense, wiped out. It had been an unfaithful tribe. And there wasn't really much to speak about it spiritually, at least in a good sense. And yet here we are hundreds of years later and, and Anna is able to trace her, her lineage to the tribe of Asher and here she is a prophetess of God. And it just reminds us again about the faithfulness of God. Hundreds of years have gone by. Israel has not been faithful. The tribe of Asher has really not made a splash in any way spiritually at all. But God has raised up this woman to be his voice in this time. It says that she's very old. How old is very old? If you interpret the scripture, the laughing from the family over here, if you interpret the scripture this way, it tells us that she was married for seven years and then was a widow for 84. If she got married at 16, which is not unreasonable in those days, she was likely around 107. Very old. And yet here she is in the temple, worshiping God and speaking the word of God to others. It tells us that she was a widow. Again, different scholars, different groups of, of biblical writers give us some different options on how this verse might be understood. But many of them understand it that she was married for seven years and then was a widow for 84. She remained single for the rest of her life. We can appreciate what it would have been like to have been a widow in those days. It was tough on women being a widow in those days unless you had family members to take care of you. But can you imagine being a widow for 84 years? would also suggest to us that she was childless. It doesn't state that, but it would suggest that to us. I wonder what she thought about her plight. When you start off with your life in front of you and you've been married for seven years and then all of a sudden your husband's taken from you and you spend the rest of your years alone, you wonder sometimes if people like her don't feel like they missed out on a little bit that others had blessings that she never experienced, at least in the natural. And probably the most important thing that it says about her was that she was devout. Different versions say that she prayed all the time and that she fasted regularly. It's probably best to be understood that when the temple had its regular times of prayer, which were three times a day, that she was there. We do know that some of the Jewish faith would pray four times on, on the Sabbath and five days on the Day of Atonement. 
But generally it was understood, Daniel from Daniel chapter 6, we understand that it was three times a day. So when it was time for the daily prayers at the temple, this lady was there and she fasted regularly as an act of spiritual devotion. And then last but not least, verse 38 tells us that she shared about the prophetic implications about the birth of Jesus. And let me read it to you again because it's a little vague. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption in Jerusalem. It tells us a couple of things. One, that God had somehow spoken to her and shared with her about what the birth of Jesus would mean. But it also tells us this, that there were others looking forward. Others, that she wasn't the only one. As, as much as we feel that Israel was in a dark time at this particular time, that there had been, quote, the 400 years of silence between the prophet Malachi and the events that are taking place now, it also tells us that there were others that were looking forward to the redemption that would be found in Jerusalem, meaning the birth of the Messiah, the Christ child, that others were. It reminds me of Elijah. Remember back in Elijah's day in 1 Kings and the story in 1 Kings 18 and 19, where Elijah, as a prophet of God, is very distraught, and he says to God, I'm the only one left. You ever feel that way sometimes? I'm the only one left, and God says to them, there are more than 7,000 that haven't bowed their their knees to Baal. This lady, Simeon, but, but also others, there were others faithful in Israel that recognized the, the, pro, the prophetic word from what we would call our Old Testament, that the Messiah would be born. They didn't know when, but they knew that he was coming and that they understood that this child was that sign that God was alive and well and working actively for the redemption of Israel. Now let me tie all of that together because what I want to do is answer the question, How does this lady represent us? I think the first thing is that we find ourselves in the Christmas story through Anna is that God once again is working through ordinary people, right? It just seems like that's what God does. Sometimes we're looking to make a splash. Sometimes we're looking to be famous, those kinds of things, um, or, or to make some kind of difference that others that are going to talk about. But it seems to be that God always uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Mary and Joseph, other than their lineage, other than their ancestry back towards David, what big thing can we say about them? Nothing. There is nothing about them in the natural that we would say God would choose that couple to be the parents of of his son. Now, we know that Mary was highly favored. We know that there was something about her that, um, you know, that draws us to her and, um, and all of that. But she wasn't highly favored because she was special. God didn't choose her because of her works. She was highly favored because God chose her. And we get that backwards sometimes. We think, well, because I'm good at something or because I'm spiritual or because I've got these giftings or that giftings, God is going to use me because I got the stuff. 
God didn't use Mary and Joseph because they got the stuff. They were highly favored, not because of what they could do. They were just highly favored because they were the couple that God chose. And the Bible tells us that God never chooses people based on works. It's always by grace. So in God's grace, he chose that couple to be the parents. In God's grace, he chooses Anna. In God's grace, he chooses us. It isn't because we're somebody. In fact, when we begin to think that we're somebody, that's almost always when we become unusable by God. And we become Saul's, King Saul's, and we think, look at me and how special I am, and let's go build a statue to me. Anna represents us because she was literally just one of us. Not, not chosen because she was this or that, but just chosen by God, gifted by God to become the mouthpiece by God. You and I have been chosen by God because we are saved by His grace through faith to be the mouthpiece for God. Now, we're the same people like Anna that are supposed to go around at Christmas time and all year round telling people why this time of the year matters. And pointing people to Jesus Christ and the birth of a Savior. And that, as Matthew tells us, and that he will save the world, his people, from their sins. We frame it well. Other than that, or we as Christians are celebrating Christmas season the same as everybody else does. Maybe the only difference for some of us is there's less booze at the table. But everything else is the same. And there's got to be more than that, right, saints? Like, there's got to be more than that. We are literally celebrating the Savior and telling people that this time matters because God sent His Son into the world to die on the cross for our sins. As a widow, as someone who was married and, and as a widow and who's someone who lived that life for so many decades, she represents us because she lived life like us. She wasn't off in some ivory tower where God pr protected this prophetess from all of life's harms. She had lived life. She knew the joy of being married, and she knew the pain of losing her husband at a young age. Again, if Jewish girls back in the good old days were most of them married in their teens, if she had only been married to this guy seven years, it is very likely that by the time she was 23 or 24, she was a widow. And then she decided to, to remain a widow for the rest of her life. And all that that meant, that living her life in many degrees, single, and to some extent, although we don't know the details, alone. Now that doesn't mean lonely. Alone and lonely aren't the same thing. They can be for some of us, but they don't have to be but alone for those years. And the Bible then tells us that what she did with her life is she decided to dedicate it to God. She was devout. Again, we don't know all of the other details. We don't know how she put bacon and eggs on the table. We don't know how she did that, how she got the money that she needed to live by, whether she had other people taking care of her or not. We don't know all the details, but she remained devout to God, which means this. Even though she had experienced some of life's hardships, she stayed sweet before the Lord. 
Because a lot of people, when they go through some of life's difficulties, they turn on God. They expected this, and they got that. Thus, God is no longer, as the song we were singing, is a good, good father. And we feel ripped off. We feel like not enough of the blessings float our way. Everybody else has their nice, neat, tidy little family, and all I've got is me and the temple three times a day. But it doesn't say that. It says that she was devout, that she focused her life on her God, on her Lord, and she made that the emphasis of her life. It was her way of making her life count. And if we do the math right, and she did live well into her hundreds, I mean, that's an extraordinary thought. If she was anywhere near around 100 years of age and was making it you know, up the temple walk, bit of a climb, up the temple walk three times a day, this woman, this woman was locked in to her Lord. God was what mattered in her life. And so she was devout. She prayed all the time. She fasted regularly. We wonder what she prayed about. I'll tell you what she prayed about. She prayed about what, what was about to happen. That Jesus, the Savior, would come. She was waiting for his return. So let me twist this for you, as should we. He's come once, the babe in the manger. He suffered and he's bled and he died once for all, right? So now what are we waiting for? We're waiting for his, his second coming. We're waiting for his return. Christmas recognizes that he came once, but the Bible tells us that he's returning, he's coming again. And so again, if we're, if we're framing the conversation at Christmas time, it can't be just about what happened 2,000 years ago. It has to point to the cross, and it also has to point to the fact that this, this same Jesus that came once and offered his life is coming again. That's not just a communion Sunday thing. We, we recognize that at Christmas time that he's coming again because the Bible speaks equally to his first coming and, of course, to his second coming, that he is the risen king, that he has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all of those that will follow, and that's a promise for you and I today. So we point people that don't know Christ to the fact that a Savior was born, but we also point to the fact that he's coming again. So, like everybody, we need to get ready. Let's stand and pray. Father, today we are grateful for people like Anna that remind us that God works through ordinary people in extraordinary ways. And even though we don't have the details about what she said, we know that she was very free with the fact that this child that was born was different from all the rest and that he would be the savior of the world. And she shared that with those of like mind that were waiting for the consolation of Israel and to others that would hear. Lord, we do a lot of sharing with one another. Lord, help us to take the good news of this child's birth beyond the walls. Help us to frame the conversation away from the trivialness of, of what Christmas is sometimes, 
Um, Lord, help us to take it away from it being centered on other things that, that perhaps are good, but are not, not the message. Help us to frame the conversation that Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. And then to remind them that there is accountability, that God is coming again. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so we need to be ready. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, just give me a moment. There may be people in the room this morning that you're not ready for Jesus to come. You may be ready for Christmas, but you're not ready for Jesus. And I'm just wondering, is there anybody in the room today that would raise a hand and by raising and saying, I need to invite Christ into my life today. Is there anyone, raise a hand. Anyone that needs Jesus today, that you would raise a hand and say, yeah, you know what, I'm not ready. Christmas has meant a whole lot of other things for me, but it hasn't, it hasn't meant anything about dealing with my sins and confessing Christ as my Savior. Anyone in the room today, young or old, Father, there may be nobody in the room today, but there are people whom we work with and we connect with as family and friends that are not ready. Help us, Lord, to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And the people said, amen. amen.